A Tiny Revolution features adults having adult conversations, which means adult language is probably going to be present. Just so you know. From the Bedlam Podcast Network, this is A Tiny Revolution, celebrating our everyday victories while telling the stories and having the conversations that actually matter. My name is Kevin Garcia, and thank you so much for joining me for another week and another conversation. I am excited because today we're talking with my friend Austin Hartke, who is the creator of the YouTube series Transgender and Christian, and it's a really interesting conversation. We start off talking about um, some pretty heavy theological concepts and then move into just talking about you know the things that we always talk about, like justice and gender and all those fun things. But before we jump into that, let me share with you some really cool stuff that's happening. If you aren't following me on social media, one, why not? But two, um, if you haven't been doing that, I launched a t-shirt line recently with my friend Donnie, and it's called Queerly Beloved. It's a line of t-shirts which basically embodies the truth that that we are God's queerly beloved people. Uh, There's a lot of tongue-in-cheek shirts, there's a lot of cute designs, and there's a lot of stuff for pride. So if you're looking for a really awesome shirt to wear to pride that says something like, I don't know, God is proud of me, where you can let your faith and your pride shine through, you can check that out at thekevingarcia.com slash merch. Um, yeah, so that's live and it's been going well and so many people have engaged with it. We're so excited. And the other thing I'm excited about is this YouTube channel that I started recently, which it's live. It's already got four videos on there. I'm posting a new video probably by the end of today. Um, so you could go check that out. Um, if you go to thekevingarcia.com slash YouTube, there's a link and it'll take you right to the YouTube channel, or you can just search the Kevin Garcia on YouTube and you'll find me there. Um, but it's a YouTube channel that is going to be directly talking about how do we talk about, uh, the Bible and LGBT issues? How do we talk about inclusion and how do we navigate spaces as queer Christians? Because I saw it as kind of a void in the YouTube world. Um, there was a lot of queer presence, but not a lot of queer people of faith on YouTube. So I'm excited to be sharing that with you. I'm excited that it's alive and it's going really well. I'm really hoping to start, uh, collaborating with some bigger names. So give me some prayers and give me some views and give me some shares and subs and let's make it happen, fam. Um, so a little bit about some speaking stuff happening. I'm going to be at the Wild Goose Festival uh, just a little over a month from now, which is going to be July 13th through the 16th in Hot Springs, North Carolina. The Wild Goose Festival is an art, music, and story-driven festival experience grounded in faith-inspired social justice. And while I'm there, I'm going to be doing two workshops, one of them being Know Thy Selfie and the other one Owning Your Story and Impacting Others. Uh, the first one where we're going to be talking about, you know, how our presentation online affects us and what we can do to actually cultivate real community. And the other one is going to be talking about how do we have conversations with people who disagree with us and how do we move it from being an argument to being something that's actually doing something good. Um, I'm also doing a set with my friend Darren Calhoun's band, The Many, out of Chicago. So you can get all the information and tickets at wildgoosefestival.org. And when you're checking out, use offer code BEMYGUEST in all caps, one word, BEMYGUEST, and you'll get 25% off at checkout. Um, there's two more things, and then we'll get to the conversation, I swear. But there's, I have so many friends doing amazing things, and I just got to like boost their signal a little bit. My friend Matthias Roberts... Um, as you know, has been a friend of mine for years now, and he's also a blogger and creative and writer and speaker, and he just launched his new podcast called Queerology. It's an incredible podcast on being 
you know, queer people of faith. Um, and it's now live. The first episode just launched the other day, and I am so thrilled for him. It's a conversation with Jennifer Knapp, a Grammy-nominated musician who was huge in the Christian music scene before disappearing for a while and then re-emerging as a gay woman. Her music continues to impact, and this conversation with Matthias is no exception. So head on over to the Apple Podcast app, to Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever the heck you listen to your podcast. Subscribe, leave him a rating, and uh, yeah, you can also connect with all of Matthias's work over at MatthiasRoberts.com. Last thing, and then we'll jump into the conversation, I promise, but I know that you want to be on the inside of all this good stuff. Um, right now, my friend Crystal Cheatham is launching an Indiegogo campaign for something called the Our Bible app. Think of it as a media hub where you can find books, podcasts, Bible translations, videos, and more all in one spot, but in a way that we've never seen before because the Our Bible app will be the first media outlet for Christians like you and me, uh, progressive, queer, feminist, um, you know, it's going to be the biggest progressive audience out there. It's going to be a place where trans teens can find affirming Bible texts, where queer kids can find devotionals that are geared for them, where women can find studies that empower them. And it's a place where your church can watch and chat about a sermon, where you can find new books and new organizations, things that you actually care about. I think this is one of the more important projects that have come out of the LGBT Christian movement for a while. And right now, the goal is to raise $20,000 in one month for finishing up development for actually paying their writers, which is something I'm excited about as a writer, and I'm also contributing to this app. The fact that they're actually going to be uh, paying and not just asking for people to, you know, just give out of the goodness of the heart, which is all well and good, but being paid for the work that we do is also so important. Um, you know, um, I think this is not just going to be an app, but I think it's going to be a part of the larger movement as well. I think it's about ending stigma about what it means to be Christian um, when we're, you know, as progressive people and we live and work in spaces that are not quite faith-based, you know. Um, I think it's going to be filling a, a pitfall that generations before us have fallen into, and we can make a difference for that and ourselves and our communities. Um by donating to to a worthy cause like this. So if you want to learn more about that, you can go to OurBibleApp.com. And on the left side, there's a link to their Indiegogo campaign. Um, and I'll also be including uh, the Indiegogo campaign in, their, in the show notes as well. Um, and fun fact, I'm looking at it right now. Uh, it's already 16% funded and it's been going for about a week now. So I think we're in a good, good, good place. So why don't you go over to OurBibleApp.com. And learn more about that. Okay, now that I've talked for practically forever, let's get on with today's conversation. Today, I'm sharing a conversation with my friend and dear brother, Austin Hartke. And I kid you not when I tell you that Austin inspires me to be a better Christian and a better person every time I talk to him. So I'm very convinced you're going to love this conversation. So a bit about him, Austin Hartke is the creator of the YouTube series Transgender and Christian, which seeks to understand, interpret, and share parts of the Bible that relate to gender identity and the lives of transgender individuals. Austin is a graduate of Luther Seminary's Master of Arts program in Old Testament and Hebrew Bible studies, and he is the winner of the 2014 John Milton Prize in Old Testament writing from the same institution. He's spoken at several conferences all over the country, including Reformation Project, Gay Christian Network, um, the Philadelphia Trans Health Conference, and currently Austin lives in St. Paul, Minnesota, where he's working on a collection of biblical and modern narratives from the gender nonconforming people of faith, and it's going to be published with Westminster John Knox in spring of 2018. 
As a trans person of faith, his greatest passion is helping other trans and gender nonconforming people see themselves in the scriptures. In today's conversation, we actually start off with some really uh, interesting topics. The, the question, what is sin exactly? And then it just kind of naturally unfolds from that, talking about gender and his experience as a trans person and our experiences with doubt and faith and all sorts of really interesting things. So, um, gosh, it was so fun editing this conversation, and I'm really excited to share with you. So grab yourself a drink or a coffee or a friend and enjoy this conversation with my friend, Austin Hartke. So here's the introduction to this whole subject that I've been thinking about, and that is that I am reading The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer because mm. this is a good time to read that book because it is all about um, what Christians are called to do in the name of being followers of Christ. And sometimes that's not that great. For instance, being martyred and being killed by the Nazis, not that great. Um, I was reading that book, and one of the like he immediately like the first chapter is on this concept of cheap grace, Um, and he immediately starts talking about the concept of like or concepts of grace and sin. And as I'm reading this, I'm just going like, "Wow, this is super heavy." Um, Not, I mean, not saying that it's hard to read, but like he's really intense about sin and like Mm. what like how sin is a problem in our lives. And as I'm reading it, it's hard for me as an LGBT person to separate the concept of sin from my identity because those mm-hmm. things have been like equip, uh, they're equivocal um, for a lot of people. Like mm-hmm. being gay or being trans or whatever is a sin. Uh, like that's what people say. And so when we talk about sin, it's hard for me to kind of go, okay, that's not what Dietrich Bonhoeffer is talking about in right. this particular, like, you know, book or whatever. Um, and so it got me thinking about what we as LGBTQ folks, uh, LGBTQ Christians, how we talk about sin, mm-hmm. because um, it's hard for us to talk about, I think, yeah. because it's been so connected to our identity. So like, but we still, like, it's still uh, in effect in our lives, it, like it is in everybody's lives, mm-hmm. so we can't ignore it. So anyways, that's kind of where this is all coming from, and I just thought it'd be good to have a conversation about it. It's something I've thought about a lot, too. What do you think, how does one even define sin? That is such a good question, uh, and I think the thing that I have come to understand about, especially like progressive Christian circles, um, especially progressive Christian circles that are involved in doing theology around race, mm-hmm. have taken... All right, let me let me go back a minute. So in James Cone's book, uh, God of the Oppressed, he makes this uh, connection where he says that um, white Christians in general or white Christianity in the past has been very much uh, focused on people's individual sins, mm-hmm. like my sin, your sin, things that I do, things that you do, mm-hmm. um, whereas the black church has historically been more concerned with the sins of, like, uh, of community as a whole mm-hmm. and systematic sin. And mm-hmm. so seeing sin as something that's like um, big and affects us all, um, but can maybe have more to do with systems and communities um, than it has to do with saying like you're sinful or I'm sinful or something like that. He kind of makes that distinction. And I think um, that progressive circles, especially ones who are, um, uh, you know, reading reading theology like Cones um, have that same thing. Where like progressive Christians are much more likely to be like, yes, the sin of racism, the sin of um, maybe even homophobia, like mm. 
things that are like large um, systematic things or have to do with our culture, those things we can point at easily. But progressive Christians have a much harder time talking about like what is personal sin? Like what mm-hmm. is like how do we talk about that and what does that mean? Um, and so I now that I have kind of recognized that, it's forced me to ask that question. Like, what do I think personal sin is? Because um, I would much rather talk about institutional sin than my own, you know. Yeah. I, I have an instinct to push against what I and a lot of other people see as, like, the over-sexualization of sin, especially in um, modern, you know, evangelical Christianity. There's, like, this real focus on, like, sex and sexual sin. Like, that mm. is what you talk about when you talk about sin. Yeah. But, like, like, he's masturbating and looking at pornography, and that's a bad sign. Yep, exactly. So, like, uh, I have an instinct to push back against that. So I feel like I have no idea how to talk about sin when it comes to sex at this point. Like, I haven't figured out a good way to talk about it yet. Mm-hmm. What I can talk about in terms of personal sin are things like, um, like for me, uh, like... Um, I, I mean, I guess the technical term for it would be like gluttony, right? Like mm-hmm. the overaccumulation of resources that could be going to other people that need those resources, but I'm sitting there, you know, taking them for myself instead of making sure that they are equally given to other people who need them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be resources in terms of the way I consume fossil fuels because I drive a car, or it can be resources like the way that I spend money to have junk food around when I could be using that to pay for higher quality produce that makes sure that the laborers who uh, reap the produce are paid a fair wage, like Mm -hmm. any sort of thing like that. So in that way, it's like my integration into systems, I suppose, but Mm -hmm. it's still a personal thing that has to do with me and my habits, Mm -hmm. my consumption habits, right? Yeah. Like that's kind of as far as I've gotten on that so far. What do you think? I was actually at a talk with my friend Erica about this the other day. Um, So for me, like I have the same the same trouble with um, talking about sex and sin because I guess when it comes to that, it's one of those things where I don't inherently see like, you know, if you have sex outside of like a monogamous committed relationship, I don't inherently see that as bad or inherently see that as sin. Um, I, but I do wonder is that the best thing for me? Is it the best thing for the other person that I'm engaging with? Is that the best per- is that the best model for society as a whole? Obviously the data is not there to talk about like what is like, you know, is this causing human human flourishing or is this causing uh, a problem? You know, I think overall like when we talk about sex like we have to do as a church, as like you know the big C church, but especially like as in the evangelical world we need to be talking about it in a much broader sense of just like, not just saying don't have sex, but like educating people like, Hey, like this is your body. Also, this is how reproduction works. And also this is the ways that you can get pregnant. And also these are the ways that you can protect yourself. Yep. Um, also there's these things called STIs that exist. And yeah. maybe, like, you know, I've, I've met people who have never, never put a condom on or used a condom before. And, and like, I don't want to like shame them for that, but I always ask them, like, well, do you think you're going to have sex, um, before you're married? Do you think you'd ever engage with that with, uh, it's more than likely going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so if it's going to happen, I would rather people be prepared for that encounter. Right. Um, but again, I think that's probably another uh, policy talk for another time but talking about sin specifically as it relates to sex I always wonder I'm just like is this causing human flourishing or is this uh, becoming a detriment to an individual's development 
Yeah. And I think that's also like my litmus test in general for for what sin is is like is my action or my inaction causing human flourishing or is it cutting off human flourishing? So right. when I think about let's just do something really basic, you know, if I murder somebody, that's obviously cutting off human flourishing. And then we can do it as super macro as just like, you know, when I purchase a certain product when I could spend a little bit of extra money and get something that's local or that's something that is like support, you know that it's like a good product that's ethically sourced and the workers or creatives who created this thing are getting paid for it. That's like a, for me, that's a slight sin of a, a slight sin. You know, yeah. that's like a sin of omission. And yeah, you know, I mean, I know that I could be doing better, but I'm not doing it because I have to spend more money or like, you know, I look at like my church in particular who has a no policy around LGBT people, but a practice of excluding them from being a part of service teams mm-hmm. or other things of that nature. So for me, like that's a sin because it cuts off human flourishing um, mm-hmm. from being able to participate in service. Same thing with like the like the big systematic sin that you talked about a second ago. That is not exactly our fault, but we have to become aware in the ways in which we are complicit and figure out how to resist those things and try and wake other people up to the fact like, hey, like, heterosexism is a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, anti-blackness is a problem. And also speak out in moments when we were able. Um, I think one of the hardest things that I'm finding in this uh, Bonhoeffer book that I'm reading is that he has a... Um, he has different metrics than I do. And like, for instance, different than like what you're talking about when you talk about like human flourishing, right? One of his big points is that God doesn't always call us to do the things that are good for us uh, in like, or that we are going to think are good for us, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, and that's a hard thing to come to understand. I think at least for me is that he's saying that there are like, he is very intense about this idea of like dying to the self mm-hmm. and that, yeah, I just, I don't even know how to explain it exactly, but he, um, he talks about how important it is that we sort of, um, wait, hang on. I've got the book right here and I'm going to read you a quote. Are you ready? Probably. Hopefully. <laughs> I don't know if you're going to be ready. Um, no, but his, he has this chapter called The Call to Discipleship where he says, um, only he who believes is obedient and only he who is obedient believes. Um, and so he's like, you got to just take a moment on that for a minute. So he's saying, if you believe you're obedient to what God is asking you to do or what Jesus is asking you to do, which is follow me, right? Mm-hmm. And only the people who are obedient believe. So you know that somebody is, you know that somebody believes because you see that they are already doing the thing. So he essentially is kind of saying, like, these two things go together. You start, like, if you feel like you don't really believe, try acting first. It's kind of like fake it till you make it. Like, act first, Mm. and then the belief sort of comes afterward. But in the same way, um, if you are obedient, or if you believe, then obedience must follow. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in that second Mm. You believe obedience must follow he talks about how there's not like that's not always the best thing like we don't think that's the best thing a lot of the time because what we are called to do is you know like the rich young man who comes to jesus and jesus is like give up everything you have and the guy's like um i don't want to do that like that doesn't mm-hmm. sound great for me um and so and so then bonhoeffer says that that young man's walking away sadly and not we think not doing the thing 
that sin because mm-hmm. he's being called by Jesus and then says no. And so that is a sin. And so like that to me, I'm sitting there going, dude, I'm totally that guy. Like mm-hmm. I'm totally that guy who sees what Jesus wants and kind of goes, I don't know if I can do that. I'm going to walk away and maybe come back later. And Bonhoeffer is straight up saying like, actually that's sin. And that's kind of a terrifying concept to think about to me. Cause like I th- the way I think about the rich young ruler, like it was his riches, which like, which held him back from being connected with God because like, that's really what he cared about. It's like what that story I think illustrates when we place ourselves in that story is like, what is the thing that, what is our riches? You know, what Mm -hmm. are the thing, what is the thing that we're holding on to that God is asking us to lay down and follow him or, or, and not even like lay down to follow him into something worse, but just like, it's obviously the better way of living if we believe that Jesus was who we think Jesus was, you know? Right. It's that same, uh, the part where Jesus says, like, you know, those who seek to save their life will lose it, but those who lose their, lose their life for my sake will find it. You know, I guess I guess in that regard, it's just, like, when you place... <laughs> this, is gonna, this is, like, I've, the, before I said it, I already realized I said this is going to be a little... This might feel triggering. I'm just like, if you place your identity in something other than Christ, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then someone, yeah. and then someone could turn around and say, "Like you're doing that with your sexuality." I'm just like, "You." <laughs> yeah, that was that's actually so you know about all the trans Christian videos I make, of course. Um, but one of the videos that I made a while ago was in response to somebody saying that they were essentially like, "You're calling yourself a transgender Christian, and you are like, look, you are essentially putting your trans identity before your Christian identity, even in the way you say it." And first of all, I was like, okay, well, first of all, we have to like explain how English works because transgender dis- is a description, right? So mm-hmm. you, transgender is a description. Christian can be a description, but it can also be a noun. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have to put the, the adjective before the noun. That's, it's how, just, it that's how English works. But, wow. <laughs> but I understand what you're saying. Um, and my response to that was that when people say that your Christian identity is your first identity or your only identity or whatever – um, that's often directed toward people who talk about trans or talk about Christian identity from any perspective other than white male Christianity, mm-hmm. like black Christianity or Asian Christianity or like you know uh, anything like that that gives a descriptor to where you're coming from. That just means that you're not a straight white dude um, because we assume that being a straight white male is the default setting for human beings. Yeah. And, and- other than that is like taking away from Christianity. But like we have to notice that the Christianity, just like straight up the, the word Christianity, has for so long been straight white dude Christianity. We just haven't called it that. So, I mean, if we say our identity is Christian first, that's fine. That's good. That's what we should have. But we can't pretend that we're not all coming from some kind of perspective. very interesting like for us i feel like the most influential writers have been like writers of black theology and gay queer theologians and you know mujerista theologies and all these things that are adding to the more of the story of god are adjectives at the front of our theologies which automatically for some reason says that they're not valid or that they're less valid or that they're you know a watered down version because you're adding to it so you're watering it down it's like 
How could you, like, the only way the, the gospel could be watered down is by telling people that it's not for somebody. I was just thinking, like, wouldn't it be nice to go back and make sure that, like, all books that come from a white, a straight, white, cis, Christian perspective are labeled that way? Like, it's part of the title of the book. Oh, yeah, that was a... fun. And then I was thinking about it and thinking that, like, people would then think that the gospel that people are talking about only will apply to that group of people, which is not true. Mm. But I think you have to admit the bias of the author or the experience of the author mm. um, and not just assume that this author has a completely unbiased, completely objective view of things. Objectivity is the biggest lie. Thinking that you are, you're an objective observer is foolish, to yeah, say the least. Kind of, it's kind of a myth. There really isn't such a thing. Yeah, even even like the people who wrote the Bible, I think, like you know, they had their own moments like they had their own cultural understandings of the world like you know physical understandings of the world cultural understandings of how people lived and moved in that world which informed like how they saw god and like the tiny glimpses that they could same thing with us like we do the same thing where like we think uh, the tiny glimpse that we can see of god like we think that we understand who god is and what god is doing and granted like you know like i feel like there's like some universal concepts like a lot of us can get behind like you know love charity equality justice because um, I think that's like one central theme that you can see, especially Old Testament. My friend Darren was writing a paper and he said that he, he came up with this really great point. He said, like, if anything, the, that, that Old Testament can teach us and, you know, the story of Israel can teach us is that religion forms itself, screws up and then reforms and keeps going. I think that's where we're at in this point in history. And anytime there's like a refusal to reform, like there's problem. Like, there's strife, there's people, like, you know, infighting with one another. And I'm like, wow, here we are again, 500 years later. (laughs) Right. Well, it always be like, like we see in the story of Israel from a people that were enslaved through the Exodus to the creation of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah to, like, becoming, essentially becoming, uh, Israel becoming empire in a small way. Like, they were still, Mm. there were larger empires that surrounded them. But we see the minor prophets especially speaking out against the things that Israel was doing to the people that needed protection. And we recognize that as speaking out against empire. Mm. And then we get Christianity that's like, you know, beaten down in early Roman times. And then eventually Christianity becomes empire. And so it's like you've always got this cyclical thing. And I was just talking to a friend of mine the other day about how – Like, this is way preemptive because we are not anywhere near getting at this yet. But I worry that queer theology can start buying into the concept of empire as we go along. Like, right now, we are nowhere near that. So it's way early to be thinking about this, but I think it's something we need to keep in mind that – it's so easy for people who believe themselves to be the underdog to continue believing that they are the underdog, even when they're in power. Um, Yes, because that's exactly what we're seeing now with white Christianity and uh, just like current political climate, people who think that they're being oppressed, hashtag white genocide. Exactly. So like, I worry, like, I think we need to keep that in mind as people doing queer theology, that that is something that happens to a lot of groups. And so we, as queer theologians, uh, as we keep that in mind, we have to remember that, um, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, um, we have to continually be taking stock and going, are we still 
oppressed? Are we mm-hmm. still experiencing these marginalizations? And if we are, okay, we still have to write from that perspective or speak from that perspective. But if at some point we realize, no, there are a lot of people that need our help and now we are the ones in power, we have to be ready to drop that sort of pretense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just, I want us to be aware of that because it's so easy to hang on to this, like, we are the victim mentality, mm-hmm. even when we're not anymore. <laughs> Yeah. And it's so hard to like think 50 years down the line because like by that time, you know, our children are going to be the ones who are starting to like come up and, you know, start saying a new thing that we're probably going to be like, that sounds a little radical to me. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I hope I'm not that way. I hope that I keep a decent Oh, I think, I think all people are that way when they get older. <sighs> I don't want to be that way. I want to be like... <laughs> As hippy-dippy as I am now. Sidebar from the things that we were just talking about. Oh, yeah. About. Tell me what your sidebar was. So my spiritual director, he's a pastor over pastoral care at my church. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't go into our initial meetings wanting him to be my spiritual director. Because um, mm-hmm. I didn't really trust him. Because mm-hmm. I don't trust anybody. <laughs> Fair. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but... I was like, you know what? He seems like someone who's wise enough and nuanced enough and has enough life experience on me to be someone who, and a safe person that I can bring all of my crap to. So like the other day, for example, at our meeting, I'm just like, he's like, so what do you want to talk about? I'm just like, I sometimes doubt the divinity of Christ. Mm. And he's like, okay. And I'm like, okay. So that's what I want to jump on because there's another bit in this Bonhoeffer book that I want to read because it makes me so nervous and that makes me think it's worth talking about. Yeah, let's um, talk about doubt. Yeah, so doubt. Um, so I often times, like basically forever, like I can't remember a time when I didn't think, I really don't know about this whole Trinity thing. Like hmm. I just don't know. Like the idea, the concept of the Trinity bothers me because – the concept as it exists in Christianity is never found to my knowledge in scripture. It's something that we kind of understood about scripture later on. Mm -hmm. Like we acknowledge that God exists in scripture. We acknowledge Jesus exists in scripture. We acknowledge the Holy spirit exists in scripture, but the doctrine of the Trinity is something that we had to kind of create like council of Nicaea stage Mm -hmm. to explain what we were seeing in the Bible. And that's always bothered me a little bit. And I'm always just a little bit like, I don't know how I feel about this Trinity thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know that it is, like, foundational to some people's faith, the idea of, like, God as a relational being. And I totally think God is a relational being. I just have a really hard time wrapping my mind around the idea of the Trinity. So that's, like, a place where my doubt plays in, right? And there are lots of times in my life where I have had moments of, I mean, like, even uh, in parts of my life where I have thought, like, yeah, actually – my, you know, what you talk about in evangelical circles is like my faith life or like my prayer life or whatever, like real strong right now. Mm -hmm. But even in those times in my life, there have been moments of doubt. And so I want to read you this bit from, uh, from uh, cost of discipleship about doubt and belief, because it threw me for a loop in not necessarily a good way. Oh no. Yeah. So we were talking earlier about how Bonhoeffer thinks that um, that obedience and belief are tied together, right? So, like, um, if you believe, you are obedient, and if you are obedient, that means that you believe. Mm-hmm. So he says, are you worried because you find it hard to believe? 
No one should be surprised at the difficulty of faith. If there is some part of, of a person's life where he is consciously resisting or disobeying the commandment of Jesus, is there some part of your life which you are refusing to surrender at Jesus' behest, some sinful passion or some animosity, some hope, perhaps your ambition or your reason? If so, you must not be surprised that you have not received the Holy Spirit and that prayer is difficult or that your request for faith remains unanswered. Go rather and reconcile with your brother, renounce the sin which holds you fast, and you will recover your faith. And that threw me. Oh. <laughs> because the idea that you're like, are you having a hard time believing in something? It's probably because you're sinning. You just have to figure out what it is you're doing wrong. And that was like, ah, like that threw me into sort of a crisis of like, well, shit, am I doing something wrong? And then, of course, as an LGBT person, that immediately made me doubt everything about like my identity and how that interacts with my faith, right? Mm -hmm. Because as an LGBT person, that's where my mind immediately goes when I think about the concept of sin, because that's mm -hmm. what everybody tells me sin is. Mm -hmm. But what if that's not it? You know, like, what if, like, I don't know, that just the whole thing threw me. And so the concept of like, belief um, as a consequence of obedience, mm -hmm. and if you don't have belief, then does that mean you're disobedient somehow? Like, what? I don't know how to understand that. That's the big cosmic uh, conundrum, it feels like to me. I guess that's why they call it divine mysteries, you know, <laughs> where things are both and yeah. not either or. It's like, like, you know, like a secular humanist, for example, who is super charitable, kind, um, you know, their life looks more like Christian, like a Christian life than some other Christians, you know, possibly. And it's almost just like, I look at them, I'm just like, you know, like you're already living like a Christian life, right? And I've never said that to them. But I was like, no, like you're practicing charity, hospitality. Um, you're taking care of your friends. Um, mm -hmm. You're taking care of your family. You're practicing love and acceptance for people. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's one of those things where it's like, that person who doesn't profess Christ is a better Christian than some Christians I know. And what, mm -hmm. do, I do, what do I do with that? Yeah. Um, or someone like Gandhi, for example, um, who... Um, he himself, like, you know, liked Jesus, but hated Christians. Cause right. They, understandable. Um, understandable. Oh, yeah. Completely understandable. So, <laughs> you know, he's already practicing the way of Christ, despite not having the label of Christian on him. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I, I wonder um, about that, that sentiment of um, belief and obedience that you were just saying, because, like, Sometimes I think I'm just like, some people believe more than we do and they don't even know it. Mm -hmm. um, or, mm. or like some people are obedient without the belief that we have. Like mm. they believe in different things. Like, yeah. Like I, I think I can see what you're saying in terms of how those things may not necessarily connect mm. for some people. Like, like there are lots of Christians who believe really strongly, but don't actually act on any of those beliefs. Mm -hmm. And there are people who do really, really good things and act um, uh, like within those parameters of like obedience to what the Bible essentially says, mm -hmm. but may not believe in, you know, God or Jesus or something like that. Mm -hmm. so in that case, those things aren't connected. Yeah. I wonder if those things have to be connected for Christians, like, do we, should or at least we be, should be, yeah. 
And so I don't know. And so the the second quote you just read about um, if you're if you're having doubt, um, it's probably because you're sinning. And like I'm not to like you know shit on Diedrich Bonhoeffer, but just I don't, <laughs> like I don't know if like if, I don't know if I buy that. Yeah, that was that was what bothered me when I read it is because at first I was like, I don't know if I buy that. And then I was like, if by not buying that, am I? Am like, I? Is he right? Is he right? Is he right? Because I'm not buying it. <laughs> A whole quote about doubting, doubt being, uh, being the fruit of sin. Yeah. <laughs> and then us saying that. But so basically we're like proving his point in a way, but also right. just like in a way we're not. That's confusing. Isn't it? Well, I think the other thing that it made me think of is I forget. Um, now, this is like a famous quote, but I forget who said it. That basically uh, faith is not the opposite of doubt. Mm-hmm. Faith is or doubt is not the opposite of faith. Certainty, Certainty is. is the opposite of faith. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in that way, like you have to have some sense of doubt in order to be a mm-hmm. person who really believes because without the option to doubt, mm-hmm. can't really have faith in the same way that without the option to do something bad you can't do something good like if doing something good is your only option you don't have any free will you know what i mean yeah and that, therefore you don't have any autonomy therefore you can't choose anything and if you can't choose anything you can't choose god right yeah um, so like if can we possibly say that doubt is a product of sin if we need to have some sense of doubt in order to be real people of faith <laughs> i'd say so i'd go more with that like I feel like there's, like, nuggets of truth in what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. I just don't know how to unpack them quite yet. It's, like, yeah. I, I feel like there's some validity of saying just, like, if you don't believe, it's probably because, like, you're doing something that's, like, contrary to the kingdom. Sure. Yeah. Possibly. And dot, dot, dot. I think there's more to it than just that. Right. So yeah. I don't want to th- I don't want to throw him out, but I think it's a little bit more complex than that. Because doubt, for me, has been the thing that has allowed me to hold on to my faith the most. Because of my doubt... I am able to dive deeper into the questions that I have, knowing that questioning is okay. Knowing that in like, I kind of like, I kind of think of it like a spelunking into a cave. Like if my heart is this pit of doubt and I don't have any idea, doubt is the invitation and doubt is the rope on which I am spelunking into the cave of my soul, along with the light of God with me to kind of illuminate those dark places to say where... God, where is your truth really? God, where is your heart really? God, what, like, this one question I have about your existence, about the Trinity, about the divinity of Christ, about the nature of the universe, all these different questions I have, I am only able to access access those if I'm able to say, I really don't know how this thing works. Right. And I'm just, I'm unsure. So I'm going to take the time and initiative to do that. Because so many people, I think, are not willing to entertain those things like they look at doubt as this very strict um bad thing of just yeah. like because they, they we equate disbelief with with sin which is exactly what Bonhoeffer is trying to explain here is that that connection and I think you're right in saying like it's that's too simple. And good thing he wrote a whole book about it, and not just those like four sentences. But like <laughs> yeah. I think I think you're right in saying that that seems like too simplistic a view. And I suppose part of that could be the fact that he originally wrote in German, and this is an English translation. So in some ways, we have an interesting 
uh, connection to the Bible there and like mm. translation matters. Maybe he didn't actually mean doubt in the way that we think of doubt in English. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Who knows? Because what does what does Shelby Anderson say? Whenever you whenever you assign language to something, you also assign value to it as well. Yep. True that, story. That was like revelatory when she said that. I was just talking about that idea of words and meaning with um, a friend of mine who identifies as non-binary, mm-hmm. and I was talking about I was talking with them about how uh, I was like, can you explain? How, what it's like to be like in the, like as non-binary to be in the middle of like two genders and they were like actually i don't think about it that way because like i actually think of myself as more of a like a, a completely different gender altogether i don't think of myself as like 50 percent male and 50 percent female or whatever mm-hmm. like i think of myself as something completely different and i was like oh man that's really confusing and they said <laughs> Uh, they said, yeah, the problem with calling myself non-binary is that by using that word, I am inherently referring to the binary that I don't ascribe to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, man, that's that's rough. And they were like, yeah, I wish we had another word because the minute I use non-binary, that means that I'm assigning value to the binary. <laughs> and so like spot on too. And I, I think about this like in other cultures, like I was watching something on, oh, did you ever watch... It was. It's actually a new documentary that just came out with Katie Couric, Gender Revolution. I haven't watched it yet. Everybody keeps telling me I got to do it, and I haven't watched it. Yet. Well, I'll say this: you don't have to watch it. It's nothing revelat. It's nothing life changing. It is right. definitely like uh, transgender identity one hundred and one. Right. Um. Really well done. Really, really well done. And I think like it. They also start out at the beginning. Like the first third of it is dedicated to talking about intersex people. Nice. And I'm like, that is cool. Um, Especially because those stories don't get told enough. But um, they also talk about in other cultures how there's like third genders completely. Oh, yeah. And how integrated they already are in society. Yep. Um, And you probably know more about this than me, but like, correct me if I'm wrong, but just like in certain Native American cultures, like they have words to describe two gen uh someone who's a third gender or something outside of male and female and same thing with like certain african traditions they also had something outside of male and female as well yeah yeah the most the ones that we know most about are cultures from samoa and some of the other polynesian islands and from india and from north american native tribes those are the kind of like Three that we know most about, but there are um, genders other than male and female that are recognized all over the world, or at least were for a very long time until they were colonized. It's so interesting. And even uh, there was, I think, like a Jewish scholar who said in certain Hebrew writings, like they referred to like six different genders. Yeah, in the Talmud, they refer to six different genders. Um, and it's really interesting because it's like people that are uh, assigned. Uh, you know, female at birth, but then have these things that happen when they grow older, and people mm-hmm. that are assigned male at birth have these things happen when they grow older. Like, there are all of these different things, and they're all recognized, and they all have, like, Jewish law is really big on having a, like, law and designation for everything so that everybody knows kind of where their place in the culture is. Mm-hmm. And so they created those specifications for those people of different genders, too, which is really cool because it shows that they were integrated into the culture and it wasn't just, like, those weird people over there. So, yeah, totally true. <gasps> it just makes me so <laughs> mad. It makes me so mad. Yep. That, like, we live in such, like, a very boring world. 
I know, right? We just keep trying to make everybody be one thing or another thing, and there's like a whole alphabet out there between male and female. I have a I have my friend um, who works with me, and he's a trans guy, and we were talking about just like how with gender being a construct, like just like how like how complex that idea in and of itself, like gender is a construct. Mm-hmm. So technically, even though it's something that like we kind of like came up with a device to describe this very complex thing that we really can't grasp, it's still very real for people. And I'm sure like you can like like feel that way. It's like identifying very much with your maleness, mm-hmm. um, even though like gender is a construct. It's like this is still like the best way to describe you. Right. That's just... one of the most fascinating things talking to um, uh, other trans folks. Like I've been doing all these interviews for the book that I'm writing and it's so great because I get to talk with all these other trans people about like their experiences of being trans. Um, and I was asking somebody the other day, like, how do you um, hold those two things in tension? Because on the one hand, you're like, gender is a construct and we shouldn't like like those constructs are in some ways arbitrary. But on the other hand, I feel very strongly that I am part of this group of people. So like, how do you hold those things together? Uh, And we were talking about a perfect example being both of us had this experience of being invited to our men's Bible study group at church. Mm. And on the one hand, my, my first instinct was like, that's so exciting. I feel so included. I feel so affirmed as like a male person. And you're like inviting me into this club. And then my immediate second instinct was why the heck do we have gender segregated Bible studies at all? (laughs) (laughs) Like, this is dumb. Um, and like, obviously there are some reasons why churches do that. Some women feel most comfortable talking about things that are very hard to talk about with only other women and same thing for men. And so like, obviously there are reasons why we feel more comfortable around people that hold the same gender identity we do, but still it's like something that I think more churches should ask about like, why do we have sex or gender segregated ministry? Is it mm-hmm. really necessary? Is it something that is helping us? Or is it something that is, um, you know, creating <laughs> possibly more uh, or less helpful spaces in our in our community? I don't know. So yeah, there's that tension there of like, yeah, I feel so included, but also this whole system is dumb. <laughs> <sighs> the struggle. The struggle of being a critical mind. Or what it... I can't remember. I said this in a teaching one time. It's like, it's hard being a prophetic person living in the present. <laughs> yeah, I think that's always been true. At least we're not called to wander around naked. Like, I'm so uncomfortable. <laughs> Especially because it's so cold outside. It's true. Mm-hmm. Walk around naked, get married, have a lot of kids, eat scrolls. All those great things. Yeah, all those things that I've ever wanted to do. Didn't one of them, like... <laughs> Wouldn't one of the prophets, like, set their shit on fire? Gosh, who was that? Was that... <laughs> I was going to say that's Habakkuk, but I don't think that's him. I don't I remember. It's... I think it's one of the other minor ones. It might have been Jeremiah, though, because he did a lot of really funny things like that. I forget. I feel bad. Apologies to all my seminary professors. You, I was driving with my sister, and we were talking about... Or I was talking about, like all the things that I'm trying to do or whatever and like how sometimes you're just like there's so much there's so much and I can't do it all and I can't change it all and I can't fix it all and yet I can't stop trying Mm. and to realize that I mean in that context I basically was like what if this is just what the next four years is going to be like and like that is so I was going to say terrifying, but it's not terrifying. It's just like, I don't even know. It's just... It's exhausting to think about. 
Yeah. It's exhausting <laughs> to think about, and it's like, it's... I almost want to say, why bother? But then at the same time, I said, because four years is like, it'll only be four years. Right. In Jesus' name, it'll only be four years, or less, if we can help it. Yeah, you know, or he'll never give it up, and we'll just have to deal with a dictator for a while. <laughs> what? A... <laughs> Sorry like, to bring that down. <laughs> no, that's so, I mean, that's real. That's real. You know what? I've, like, I've stopped, like, I used to be a really big fan of, like, watching John Oliver, because he would, like, poke fun at everything. Like, everything was a joke, and LOL, political satire. Now he's literally just, like, reading the news and talking about, like, what's wrong. Yep. And it's like, this isn't even... Or, like, whenever, like, SNL does, like, they spoof, like, one of the one of the cabinet members. Yeah. Um, and I'm just like... That's, like, that's literally... Like, that's not even a caricature. That's You're literally just quoting. I know. Like, it's become something that's really hard to find humor in anymore because it's just like, no, that's actually real life. Yeah. <laughs> I was talking to my dad the other day. I'm working with my dad on having good conversations about this because he's a Trump supporter can, still. Um, and Oof. he doesn't believe racism exists at all. Um, and, like, a lot of other things. And so I am in this process of trying to have, like, meaningful conversations with him about it Mm -hmm. and it's so hard and i was thinking the other day that i want to just start like a twitter thread i'm like this is how i'm going about it and what i'm finding works and what i'm finding doesn't work because like i can't find a good guide to like talking with people who you have almost nothing in common with (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah mike maharg was talking about that too on twitter the other day about him going listening to Trump supporters from across the South and Midwest. Mm-hmm. And he said, like, the biggest thing I can say is that, like, I'm willing to listen, but, like, there's a hot a hot kettle of racism just chilling. And he's like, and I'm not willing to, like, compromise on that. The thing and- that I found most helpful is to, like, you have to keep working back your conversation uh, until you get to a point where you do agree on something. Mm-hmm. So, like, eventually, after, like, two hours of talking with my dad the other day, we got to the point where we were like, we both care about how everybody in this country is doing. <laughs> like, we both care that people have good lives. Mm-hmm. How we think we should go about making sure that happens is completely different. But at least we know we're coming at it from the same, or we're, we have the same value behind it. And, like, that was the closest we could get to agreeing on something. And even um, when you say that, just like we have the same value, I'm just like, do you though? <laughs> I know. Because, <laughs> like... My whole thing was like, if you, um, I basically went into the conversation saying, dad, I know you're not a bad person. I know Mm. that you don't like hate people. And I know that you don't want people to die and have terrible lives. Knowing that, how can you possibly support all of this? And so that was kind of how I went into it. Just like trying to be Mm. curious about how those things could both be true. Mm. And when we talked about it more, it became very clear that like, no, he really does care about people. He just has this he's just stuck with this like Reaganomics trickle down economics thing where he thinks that like economics are the root of all problems. And if only we can get the wealth to like the wealthiest people more wealthy, and then it'll all trickle down and rising tide lifts all boats and then everybody will be fine. And I'm like, but if economics isn't the problem, then what do we do? And like, that was kind of where we came to an impasse because he thinks economics is the root of all the problems. And I don't, Mm -hmm. but at least we could come to the point where it was like, now I understand that it's not that you hate people. It's just that you think that economics will fix everything. <laughs> uh, I, 
I've experienced similar things with my family as well. I think it's also very interesting, like, because, um, like, is your dad cool with, obviously, your identity as a trans man? Uh... <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, it's like, that was actually the sweetest thing in the whole conversation, is when I was talking about, like, because I eventually got biblical and was just like, if the Bible tells us to do all these things about, like, taking in the foreigner and making sure that they aren't treated as if they're an outsider, like, then what do we do with all this stuff? And he was like, actually, because uh, he used to be part of, I don't know if you know, the Lutheran Missouri Synod, Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. They're mm-hmm. like the, yeah, the super conservative Lutheran mm-hmm. faction. Um, and he used to be part of that church, and he switched and started going to an ELCA church, which is the dom- denomination I am, which are LGBT-affirming um, and generally much more progressive. And he was like, I switched churches because of you. Like, I couldn't go to a church that told me that you were bad, even though I have, like, a lot of things that I'm still working through about it. I didn't want to be – like, I couldn't go to a church that told me that my kid was bad. And I was like, okay. That gives me a lot of feelings, <laughs> mm-hmm. and it get, makes me hopeful for like a future in which, if he starts to meet other people that are being directly affected by these policies, mm-hmm. then that will change his mind too. Like he changed his mind on this thing because he knows me. So maybe if he meets other people that are suffering from these policies, maybe that that will change his mind too. I think visibility is our greatest tool as queer theologians and as just activists and as humans and to bring it all around full circle is just like what what the conversation like you having with your dad and like what we're trying to have with our families is talking about like sin in -hmm. some ways because just like i think that like and i truly believe that like if god truly is on the side of the foreigner the oppressed the outcast the other then if i am either complicit or implicit in letting things happen to those people, like I am, I'm sinning, mm-hmm. you know, I am cutting off human flourishing. I am not doing something beneficial for myself or for the other person. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> my friend, Sue Ann, uh, do you know Sue Ann Shaw? I totally do. She's great. Sue Ann was tweeting the, like we were talking she's like, I think evangelicals are too soft on sin. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm like, really? She's like, yeah, because like, you know what? I'm all about love the sin or hate the sin because I love white people, but I hate white supremacy. That's legit. <laughs> I'm just like, whoop, there it is. So <laughs> that's a good example of that, like sin as a, as a cultural construct rather than as something that is uh, intrinsic to a single person. Like you, and you can know, say, I, think I had a little brain yeah. just now. Um, yeah. So when we, when we think about this is that like, I feel like. Jesus probably, and I don't know if, like, Jesus, like, you know, understood, like, systematically. I'm sure he did. Um, who can say? Um, but, like, he also understood that systems themselves cannot change overnight. And so what did he do? He got 12 people around him. Who then got people around them, who got people around them. And so pretty soon, you know, Christianity becomes this, like, this underground religion, this underground movement of people who were just being radically kind to one another and like taking care of the needs in their community. Cause he understood that on the individual level, that's where systemic change happens is from the grassroots. Um, and how I think he illustrates this is in a lot of like his, uh, talking about like the loss, like sermon on the Mount. When he's talking about adultery, I, I tell you the truth. Even if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your mind. Mm-hmm. So again, elevating women, taking the, taking the blame off of them for just being, 
women <laughs> and saying like you know what like this is about your individual mindset you know granted even though like within like a lot of jewish custom like it wasn't so much about what you believe but about what you did i think jesus is saying yes what you do is important but also just like how you see people is equally mm-hmm. as important how you value the other person is in equally important because out of the overflow of your heart the mouth will speak mm-hmm. and the and the and- bu- like how you value people is going to determine how you treat them too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Both and. Yeah. Both and. Good old good old Lutheran theology there with the both and. Listen, slowly but surely, <laughs> Emmy Emmy keeps saying come to the dark side. Do it. Bring it on. I'm probably gonna be a Lutheran <laughs> in three years anyways, who knows? Oh yeah. <laughs> That was a conversation with my friend Austin Hartke. You can connect with Austin's YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Austin Lionheart. And that's Austin spelled A-U-S-T-E-N like Jane Austen and not like the city of Austin. Um, Austin can be found at the same Instagram and Twitter. And you can connect with all of his work over at austinhartke.com. I want to give a huge shout-out to my amazing supporters on Patreon. This month, we had over 17 new patrons pledge their support to creating LGBTQ Christian content in the form of blogs and podcasts and now the YouTube channel, which is now live. And I'm so overwhelmed by this the sense of gratitude that there's people who actually believe that this work is important, that this work can save lives. And with the support that we've gained so far, we're just under $500. This means I'm actually able to take some more time off of working in my restaurant job and pour it directly into content creation. So my hope is the more content we can put out together, the more we're going to be able to gain more support and we can transition into doing this more full time. So if you're someone out there who has been enjoying the podcast or any other part of the content we've been putting out there, I'd love for you to consider becoming a supporter of this work through Patreon. And you can get all of the info and info about the great perks that come with being a patron at patreon.com slash thekevingarcia. Additionally, I want to say thank you to the Promote Love Movement for featuring me recently. Um, Promote Love Movement is this dope community that is building spaces for queer people with faith backgrounds to tell their story and find the community and help that they need. You can learn more about them and check out my story at promotelovemovement.com. And I want to say thank you to you for actually listening to this and for all the support you've been giving me and for all the support you give to your communities and also friends, happy Pride Month. It's just, ugh, I'm, I'm swelling with joy and I, it's, it's so cool to see the amount of visibility out there. And especially in a time like this, I think pride matters more than ever. So no matter who you are, where you're coming from, remember that God is proud of you, God loves you, and I love you. As per usual, you can connect with me over on the blog, thekevingarcia.com, and I'd love for you to leave a comment. What did you think about today's podcast? What do you think sin is? Um, You can go to thekevingarcia.com and click on the blog that is featuring this podcast. It'll be by the same name. And you can, you know, dive into the conversation there. And while you're at that, do me a favor and leave me a rating in the iTunes podcast store. It does a lot for helping with visibility and getting this podcast connected with other people who actually need it. So once again, thank you so much for listening. My name is Kevin Garcia. This has been another episode of A Tiny Revolution, and I cannot wait to share another one with you very soon. Talk to you later. Bye. Wouldn't one of the prophets, like, set their shit on fire?